Unscripted Direct is brought to you by WalkUp, Melodia, Kelly, and Schoenberger, based in the city of San Francisco, but with cases all over this country. WalkUp is one of the most respected plaintiff's personal injury and wrongful death law firms. I thought you might break out the song there. Maybe next time. Go on. Go on. The attorneys at WalkUp are so passionate about trying cases, we created an initiative to join those smaller shops to try cases that otherwise wouldn't have the resources to be tried. We call it WalkUp Team-Up. If you or a friend have a case and want to learn more, check it out at walkupteamup.com. When I was younger, I would watch uh, TV with my grandmother, and she would watch, among other things, Matlock and the A-Team. Mm. So every time you say, if you or a friend have a case, I think of like the beginning of the A-Team, like, if you or a friend have a problem that no one else can solve, call Walk Up Team Up. That's what I always think you're going to say. Oh, well, I'll get it right next time. I keep grouping up the text. I, I think you're getting it right. I think I just have a strange memory. Um, we thank Walk Up for supporting this podcast and our trial advocacy community. Welcome to Unscripted Direct. I'm Spencer Falky from Berkeley Law. I'm Justin Bernstein, UCLA. Spencer, how are you doing? Doing well. I'm doing well. Ready to, ready to roll. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You had a fun weekend, right? Uh, I did have a fun weekend. Yes. And somebody we both know and somebody who our listeners know of uh, got married. Why don't you tell them? You done got hitched. Sam Chase, the Sam Chase and Kiki. They're married. Congratulations to yeah. Sam and Kiki. Um, how was the wedding? <laughs> Sam is, as you know, only, you know, you know, being a great editor is only one of his many talents. He is also, as we've discussed, a fabulous musician. And if you're a fabulous musician and you, you know, travel not just on the West Coast, but he's been to Europe and all kinds of places, East Coast. You make a lot of friends. And I think Sam described this as a party with 300 of his closest friends. And that is actually not joking. It was an incredible artistic party. And I should point out something very important. It was a costume party. It was Dios de las Muertes. And so people were dressed to the hilt. It was really impressive. What was your costume? I sent you a photo. So you did send me a photo, but I did not recognize... The costume. And I, I don't think that's an indictment of you and Tina. I just, I, my pop culture knowledge is limited. I'm, I'm younger than you are. So I don't know as many references. Um, do you want, do you want to just, do you want to describe the costume for everybody? You know, I, I you should never go. Well, well I, I, I can describe it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, it'd be fine. Okay. So you're both wearing black turtlenecks and, and covering all but the turtleneck is some sort of white translucent sheet i wouldn't say translucent it's a shimmery shiny uh oh, okay outfit it's like a 1980s workout outfit if you wanted to really sweat off a few extra you know <laughs> pounds of water got it so you didn't want to describe it but when, when i misdescribed it you were there well you kind of got a little bit wayward and i wanted to help you okay so what is the reference <laughs> So I'll tell you that multiple people at the wedding walked up to us and they got it correct. So, uh, you know, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's, it, I don't think this one's me, but before I make fun of you too much for, you know, not getting the movie reference, um, I'll just, I, I, I fear wildly inadmissible at the end. And so I'm going to be somewhat gentle here and say that we were Todd and Margot from uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And it was really fun. 
Well, you guys look great. <laughs> yeah, well, we had definitely the shiniest outfits uh, at a Dios de los Muertos party. Um, but it was a great time and great music. And uh, Sam and Kiki married. It's very fun to see them together that way. They've been together a couple of years, but it's fun to formally tie the knot. Very nice. Congrats to Sam. Congrats, Sam. We're still going to make him edit this week, right? Uh, made him edit last week. So, <laughs> right. I'm sure in the middle of his honeymoon, uh, she'll, she'll be thrilled to know that he is editing unscripted direct. <laughs> Love you, Sam. How about you? You got up to something pretty big. We hosted the premiere this weekend. That's our new competition for new competitors. Uh, the only requirement is that you had to be in your very first law school competition. Well, how'd it go, Justin? I heard rave reviews from my students and coaches. I'm glad to hear that. I think it went really well. We got lots of great feedback from the participating teams. People asked us if we're going to do it again, and I think we will. The goal for the tournament was to provide opportunities to students who've never done this before. In many ways, it was low frills, low key. Uh, it was at our law school, and the judges were all coaches. So all the coaches from the teams judged equally. Um, and so as a result, it was a little less formal, which I think was less threatening to the new students. But as at the same time, the quality of feedback was exceptionally high because they're getting feedback from people who coach this stuff. Um, and so people said they had a really good time, and I'm, I think we'll do it again. Yeah, I particularly like the uh, the fact that you couldn't have competed before in law school to be able to compete in this. It just makes it a little more welcoming for somebody who hasn't done it. You know, it's it sort of tempers the fear and expectation that can go with that kind of thing. So I thought that was great. And it ran so smoothly, apparently, that what did you move up? You were able to do the awards sooner than anticipated? Was that what the event was that got moved up? I saw an email. Yeah. So we were going to have the closing ceremony at, at six o'clock to do awards on Sunday night. But coaches were efficient in, in ruling on objections and submitting their ballots and giving feedback. So I said, you know, I think we can we can start at 515. So awesome. everybody was able to make their flights home. Uh, good weekend. Nice work. Thank you, sir. Yeah. We, of course, don't script anything around here at Unscripted Direct. Uh, however, there is some text on my screen, which is intriguing to me. Uh, it may or may not say new competition. Curious what that might be about. I can tell you. Can you? That's that. You know what? Let me ask you. Uh, what is this new competition that I see on my screen? I'm glad you asked. So the premiere went well. The format seemed to be well received. And in looking at the spring schedule, there's a lack of invitational competitions, particularly those that uh, are available to people who are tighter on budgets. And so I was talking to Phil Pascarello from Drexel and Jared Rosenblatt from Hofstra, and we're going to launch the Trial Advocacy Online National Championship. Nice. Uh, we'll make it open to anybody who wants to participate. The, the competition will be in late February. I'll send out an email on the listserv with the details. But the, the trials will all be one-on-one. -on -one. So let's say, for example, Berkeley's participating. You'd have a two-person team. One of your advocates will be the prosecution attorney directing their teammate as the witness. And then on defense, uh, the witness becomes the lawyer and the lawyer becomes the witness. So they each get one side as a lawyer and one side as a witness. Very cool. Yeah. And you said as many folks as want to can join. So how are you doing the judging, the scaling, the, you know, what's going on there? <clears throat> so we're going to have it all coach judged. Uh, and it'll all be on Zoom. So it'll be accessible to everybody. It'll be able to keep the cost down for those who want to attend. And it'll provide opportunities for people who otherwise wouldn't get them. And in that vein, 
uh, we're going to limit participation to JD students who were not competing at Tyla or AAJ this year or have in the past. In other words, it doesn't have to be a new student, but it can't be somebody on your on your NTC team or your stack team. What if you have two or more um, such two-person teams at your school? Can you send more than one of them? We'll guarantee one team to everybody, depending on interest. Uh, people can apply for as many as three teams. Three teams. So uh, you got room for a Berkeley team or two? At least one. Go Bears. Go Bears. <laughs> That's great. I love it. And um, you're right. The spring schedule uh, will benefit uh, from your guys doing this. So thank you for doing that. Will, be, will it be criminal? You said uh, prosecution and defense. Do you know that it'll be criminal? 90% sure it'll be criminal because, you know, they're easy to balance. They're so easy to balance. Yeah. yeah. Never had a problem with that. No, no, no. That's really cool. Well, I'm yeah. Excited. Well, we're glad you're going to do it. We got our first team signed up. Yep. You sure do. You sure do. Before we talk about the spring competitions. But what, what, which, what, what? Let's talk about some fall competitions. The break. The break. Out here in Los Angeles, Loyola hosted the National Civil Trial Competition. Before I announce the results, I have to say, nobody does the swag and the events better than Professor Poles. Uh, we got great shirts, but the, uh, the the crown jewel was the Saturday Night Event was at the Grammy Museum. This year's case involved a Grammy Award winner uh, based on Aretha Franklin's estate dispute. It's a probate case. So the award ceremony uh, announcements were at the Grammy Museum. My students had a blast. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. So the results. Semi-finalists were Campbell and Stetson. The finalist was Cumberland. And the winner, Akron. Congrats to Kevin and his team. Then back east, Georgetown's white-collar criminal competition. We had semifinalists Case Western and NYU finalist Villanova and the winner was Texas. Texas's second win of the fall. Very nice. Even further east, the Puerto Rico trial competition. There were 12 teams and six semifinalists. Wow. Wow. Impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pace, Fordham, Ohio Northern, Pacific McGeorge, South Carolina and Texas, all semifinalists but only one finalist, Texas A&M, and one champion, Rutgers. Okay, let's bring it back to the West Coast with the premiere, the premiere of the premiere. Uh, let's see our semifinalists. Right. Yeah, I'm kicking it off. Semifinalists were Texas Southern and Cal Western. Our finalist was Pepperdine and the winner, UCLA. Great weekend of trial advocacy, folks. We're back with our second edition of Where Are They Now? We started off with Colin Tierney a little while ago. That was fun. And now we're checking in with Emo Kolu from Akron. Fun. Yeah, that was great. I got to talk with him and he is up to great things in his career. Surprise, surprise. What's he up to? Maybe you should listen. I think I will. <laughs> Well, we welcome Emo Kai Okolo to Unscripted Direct for our Where Are They Now uh, segment. And Emo Kai, if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to try to uh, embarrass you for a second here, okay? All good. All let's, let's, see, let's see what I got. So 
this comes from a relatively trusted source, so I think it's probably good info. Here it goes. Quote, when Imokai tried out for the Akron trial team, he was tasked with preparing an opening statement or a closing argument. I don't recall which option he selected or even which side of the case he chose. But in the first three seconds of his tryout, it was clear to all of the judges in the room that one, he had a special presence, comfort and charisma in the courtroom. And two, he was really smart. End quote. How's that, huh? Any guesses <laughs> on who might have shared that with me? I mean, I imagine it was probably my coach, Coach Kevin. <laughs> That's funny. He was right, and so too were those judges. You had a ton of success in law school. As a 2L, you were a TOC finalist. You went to AAJ, won regionals, made it to AAJ national finals. You were the top gun for Akron, made it to semifinals, only losing on a split ballot to Tatiana Terry, who won the whole darn thing. As a 3L, back to TOC yet again, made it to semifinals. AAJ canceled due to the pandemic. Top Gun, you were a semifinalist. And then, of course, you capped things off winning the online opening statement competition, beating about 100 competitors to become a national champion. So what a great treat it is to have you on, uh, Imokai. Thank you for joining us. Oh, no, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, for sure. <laughs> so... Tell us what's what's been what's been your path since you graduated. What's you know what did you? I, I know there's been a couple steps. So what was the first one? After graduating law school, obviously you know I had that summer sort of a pandemic summer. Bar exam keeps getting pushed back. I decided to take a job at Jones Day. I had been summer. I had summered at Jones Day uh, the year before, and at that time I was you know thinking you know it'd be interesting to start my career uh, in big law. Um, it was a sort of interesting opportunity to be able to go to a firm that was doing. Uh, a good amount of trial work, actually. And so they were doing a lot of litigation and the smoking and health space for the tobacco industry. I was there for about three years. I found myself, <laughs> you know, asking myself, what do I want my career to look like? You know, what is truly important to me? Why did I become a lawyer? And what impact do I want to be able to have? Um, and when I was asking myself those questions, it did not make sense for me to continue my role at Jones Day. Um, and so actually just this past summer, I decided to quit my job. Uh, I've been telling folks I kind of fire, I fired the firm. <laughs> told them I'm pretty, uh, you, guys, you guys have had enough of me. Um, I decided to open my own practice. Um, and now I have started my own practice. I just started my practice in July of this year. Um, I'm primarily doing criminal defense work, civil rights work. Um, and I still do some business litigation and transactions. Wow. So I always love getting to talk to folks who have started their own shops. And many of my former students have. My sister has. It is exciting. It is scary. Uh, how How hard was it for you to decide to take that leap? And I came at it with a little bit of an advantage, right? I um, am a community organizer. I have been in the legal sort of space in the industry, whether it be as a student, as someone who's just trying to take in knowledge. And so I've met a lot of people along the way. I've made an effort to be a student, a learner. And so I've learned from so many individuals, have connected with a lot of people in the industry who have really been my community, who have allowed me to like take in more information from them. I have a lot of resources, people I can reach out to if I ever need help in my own practice, which made it a lot easier, a lot more comfortable to start my own practice. And the, the, the simple fact is big law pays a lot. You know, I was working for Jones Day. It's one of the largest law firms in the world. The salaries were just disgusting. Um, and so I made an effort to save some money up <laughs> before I left. Uh, you know, too many people told me they had the horror stories of, you know, you work in big law for years and you don't save or you don't, you know, do what you need to do. And so I made an effort to sort of save to give myself that sort of financial comfort uh, to just make the jump. People told me all the time, you're never going to save enough money. You're never going to feel like you have enough money saved up or whatnot. But at some point, you just got to make that jump. And for me, that was it. 
I just made the jump. Um, it was the best jump I feel like I've made in my life. Well, I can tell by the exuberance you have for it. And I love to hear that and, and, and quite literally see it. I want to talk more about the community organizing. And I understand that you have Maroon Community Solutions. It's, it's part of your firm. Tell me about that. I pride, I pride myself and my firm on trying to do that sort of work, trying to do a lot of pro bono work for folks who don't have access to lawyers because lawyers can be expensive. They can be very inaccessible given the type of law that's being practiced. And how do we make law more accessible to people in my community? Um, and that's why I really started the Maroon Community Solutions aspect, what I call the nonprofit arm of my law firm to be able to do that sort of pro bono work. Uh, we're in the midst right now. We just bought a bus. It's sitting outside here wow. outside of our office. Um, it's like a 16 pass bus. We're going to gut the bus and turn into a free mobile legal clinic to be able to go across and be mobile wow. and provide legal services to our community. That's the kind of work that I really want to do with Maroon Community Solutions and also provide a space to bring other lawyers into that work, other lawyers who feel as though they don't have the capacity or the space to be able to provide uh, their legal talents and their legal abilities to people in our community. Well, I love the idea of making it easier for others who want to help, but they, they're not in the position of, you know, buying a bus or have your background experience in it, but they're talented lawyers and they've got some extra time. It sounds like you're trying to give them opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, the, the space is there too. And I think oftentimes people find themselves asking like, oh, I just don't know how to get involved yeah. uh, and trying to help people answer that question for themselves and also maybe providing an avenue if this is something they, you know, that aligns with their values and aligns with what they want to do. Oh man, that just seems like a virtuous circle to me, right? I mean, you're going to be doing good and meeting people in the process and that will be, you know, causing the community to, to, to improve, um, you know, the experience of folks in the community to improve and, and, you know, side benefit, it will help you run a business, right? I mean, you're going to, you know, at the end of the day, you got, you got bills, you got to pay and that kind of thing and building those contacts to make that possible. How's it going from the business perspective? I mean, it's just, we're in uh, October here. It's just three months in, four months in, <laughs> yes, is that right? Yes, about, yes. I have found myself uh, somewhat overloaded with the amount of people who have reached out to me. It is, uh, uh, it is a blessing uh, to be in a position where folks uh, want my help. So it's been interesting toward helping people in various kind of contexts. Um, but, you know, surprisingly enough, it has been extremely profitable, you know, and, and it's tough. Because it is a mix of, you know, civil rights work, which doesn't always pay up front, which comes a little bit down the line, um, but still having a, a hefty a load of business litigation and business transactions for folks. I've been able to really dive into the nonprofit space and helping nonprofit organizations here, uh, reviewing contracts, reviewing bylaws, helping them get it started up. Um, and so it's been a really good mixed bag that allows me to sort of uh, still have a, a grounding <laughs> to not feel like I have to take on certain cases just for the money or have to make mm -hmm. decisions because of the money, but allows me to really still be rooted in my passion, which I love. And I'm blessed for, for that. I, I loved that. I'm really impressed at how quickly you're feeling that way, just from a keeping the business afloat perspective. I and mean, that is fabulous and probably a product of all the community ties you've built and ties in the legal community. So let me finish up by asking you, how has your experience in, in mock trial, you know, been part of and important to your real life practice? And your mock trial goes back, I didn't mention it, but it goes back to a very successful college career as well. But I think so much of what I'm grateful for from the mock trial community is the community itself. Um, I think one of the biggest things, especially like for me personally, was the confidence. You know, it requires a lot of confidence and belief in yourself to go out here and really practice law and believe that you can make it happen. 
um, and be there for your clients. Um, and oftentimes that sort of confidence and belief in yourself is what maybe stops individuals from making the move. And one of the things I'm most grateful for, I think, in being in the mock trial space was really building my confidence and building my belief in self. You know, as I really began to work hard, right, learn more, the results produced, right? I mean, I, I got results from that. That confidence I have been able to gain from mock trial has allowed me to be a lot more dynamic in my practice and in my organizing work. Well, Emo Kai, thank you for sharing your story with us and where it is at this point, uh, this at this juncture. I'm excited to see and hear about the next steps, but it's so great to see you doing so well. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Love the podcast. <laughs> Well, that was a fun interview. Sure was. Sure was. That's the best thing about this, how much fun it is. But it was great. I just love seeing these people who were students doing things in their careers and to see Emokai leaving um, a large firm. And there's a lot of merit in staying at a large firm, but to see him leaving a large firm and um, going off to do uh, open his own shop and put out his own shingle and do the work he loves, that's pretty cool to see. So it's fun to be a witness to it. Uh, two observations. One, I love the Spencer controversial remarks. It's great if you leave a, a big firm. It's also great if you stay. <laughs> you had a lot of referrals from big law firms, so I'm not right. throwing you shade. Right. Uh, but I kind of love the timing of this because the same week that we're announcing the Trial Advocacy Online National Championship, uh, you're you're broadcasting the interview with Emakai, who won yes. during the pandemic the 2020 National Online trial advocacy competition that UCLA co-hosted with Adam and Fordham. So full circle, full circle, completely intentional. Every single time around here, there are no coincidences. Okay. So that was our shorter interview for where are they now? Mm. We've got a main interview this week. That was also your interview. Nice work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I don't know if I, did I contribute anything this week? I'm not sure that I did. <laughs> I mean, you, you got two interviews. You got the, the costume. <laughs> Just wait. Just wait. You have your, you'll have your chance. Okay. I got to sit down with Reza and learn more about him. It's I just love that. I mean, that's the initial impetus of this whole program that we have here. Uh, so I got to learn more about him. But then, of course, we also talked a little bit about Gold Cup. So it's exciting. Uh, you said Reza. Does does Reza have a last name? Sorry, I guess I, I, I'm counting myself as friends. Yes, Reza Rezvani. I'm excited to listen to this one, too. <laughs> Please introduce yourself to the jury. My name is Reza Rezvani. Reza, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Really appreciate your joining. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, uh, I always like to start at the beginning, uh, which is to say, where are you from? I grew up in Long Island, a little place called Roslyn. And uh, yeah, I grew up there for most, most of my life. I had a little stint where I went to three different high schools in four years. So that's a little fun fact. Um, that's it. That's where it started. What, what was it like growing up in Roslyn? Tell us about your youth. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Um, I have some friends that I've had for life. Um, small, small town, not small town, but like close knit. And uh, yeah, I loved it. What, what kind of kid were you? Did you play sports a lot? Were you doing other club activities? Were you, you know, riding your bike around with the guys in the cul-de-sac? Like what, what was it like? There's no cul-de-sac, but I did ride my bike quite a bit. Um, and basketball. I played basketball religiously from like 10 years old on. Did you play through high school? I did. I played through high school. I played um, junior varsity on Division three basketball as well. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I was going to loop back to your, uh, see that looping? I'm overtly looping. I was going to loop back to, you said three high schools in four years, but you played basketball. How hard was that to get on a team? You have to prove yourself each time or what? Yeah, um, I had to prove myself each time and it, it made me a lot better. And I got to play with a lot of different types of basketball players. And as stressful as that part was, right? Like proving myself each round. Um, it also helped the transition for me in terms of making friends. So on one side, it was a little bit, you know, not stressful, but challenging. But at the other hand, it was really, it helped accelerate the friendships at each stop. Hmm. Well, we'll get to it later. Um, but I just want to preview it a bit now. You, you've worked at a few different law firms over time uh, successfully. And like I said, we'll get into that. But I don't know, it was uh, your shifting around from high schools and basketball teams that a, was that a preview of that? Was that like a... You know, did you use those skills of developing new friendships a lot in your, you know, your professional career? I think so. I think at its core, it made it easier for me to move around when it was time to move around. Um, when things got a little stagnant or there was an opportunity for growth somewhere else, I really do think that going to three different high schools in four years um, just helps. It's going to be okay, right? You're going to go somewhere else. It's going to be a little rough, but it's going to work out. And then there's growth on the other side of that. Um, yeah. So it definitely helped without a yeah. doubt. You probably build a reflex for it, right? It's like the first time is scary, but then you sort of realize, well, I take that step and you know, there's actually ground on the other side of it and you can, so it could be a whole new green field of friends and experiences, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was rough being younger and doing it right. But with each stop, it got less rough and yeah, it, I always look back to it, right? There's like very, there's always those things that you look back to growing up that were really not so pleasant at the time, but there is no doubt it helped me make the moves that I made and grow the way that I grow, grew. So I'm really appreciative of that. Now I am appreciative of that. Uh, how about your family? Any brothers, sisters? Tell us about your folks. Yeah, I got a younger brother, um, four years younger. He's got three amazing kids who I love deeply. Um, they live in Princeton, near Princeton, New Jersey. And my parents still live in the same house that we grew up in, in Roslyn. Wow. Um, yeah, they're going to be there for the distance, I think. And, uh, yeah, just a, just a close family. We do, we do all the holidays together. We do all major sporting events together. My family is a big Boston Celtics fan. Ah, mm. That's largely because of me. So we, uh, the playoff time, we will be all together during every playoff game at someone's house. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. Is that common? I, I'm I'm a West Coaster slash Nebraskan, so I wouldn't know any better. But I mean, Boston coming from Long Island, is that is that typical? No, it's not. I was definitely an outlier there. So I, uh, so like I said, I grew up playing basketball. And at that time, it was late Boston Celtic peak time, right? So Larry Bird was there. And for whatever reason, he was my guy. I gravitated towards his style. I wanted to be like him. And then, then, then the team. And then from there, I just stuck with them through the, the good times and the bad times. <laughs> Are you a good shooter? Can you, uh, can you knock down a three? I can definitely knock down a three. Okay, good. We'll keep that in mind when you play Justin next. Uh, I think that's a weakness for him out there on the top of the key. <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, all right. So when did you realize you wanted to be a lawyer? And I guess more specifically, and it may not be the same time, when did you later realize you wanted to be a trial lawyer? This is going to sound 
incredibly like fake, but in my fifth grade yearbook, you know, where you write down what you want to be when you grow up, I wanted to be a lawyer. I love that. Why does it sound fake? That sounds great. What? 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 I mean, it's true, and I don't, you know, it's just, it's just this. I was very fortunate. I knew what I wanted to do. I don't know how I knew what I wanted to do, but I knew what I wanted to do, and I, I always knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer. <laughs> um, I don't know what the origin story of that is. I do know, as I got older and I can articulate, it, I know what the reasons are now. But why, when I was in fifth grade, I knew I wanted to do it. I cannot answer that question. <laughs> That is what, so was, did you, any family members who were lawyers? Any nope. friends? No. No, I'm the first TV time. shows even. It just, it just, no. No, I mean, my mom, my mom has a theory. My mom's theory is that when I was younger, before I could speak, she watched a lot of Perry Mason. I don't necessarily buy it, but who knows? Maybe that's the reason. Very formative time. And, you know, I think it's a <laughs> leading hypothesis right now. <laughs> I mean, like, there has to be something. I don't know if that's it, but it's a, it's a, it's a sweet theory by my mom. Yeah. Yeah. Moms are good at that. Um, <laughs> so, so if you knew you wanted to be a lawyer in fifth grade, were there any telltale signs about that? Were you particularly argumentative? Did you always have to uh, win the case on the playground or with mom or dad? Yes. <laughs> Without question. And the amount of times that my father called me stubborn growing up, it's, I mean, the over under on that is probably 5,000 and <laughs> the over is the better bet. So any particular, like, uh, you know, debates that you can recall or, you know, that kind of stand out in your mind? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I can commiserate with you. I remember in third grade, I, um, you know, being on the Great Plains, uh, I was insistent on proving to Mrs. Gillum that you could call a buffalo a buffalo or a bison. There was no difference. She had listed buffalo up on the sign on the board, and actually bison was also fine. And she was, <laughs> she was done with me at that point. I don't know if you have any. <laughs> I don't have one of those. That's a good story. Um, I don't know if I have one of those. I, I honestly, and going back to the parents, I think I just argued with them a lot. And I think I just took an opposite point of view, sometimes to be difficult, sometimes because I thought I was right. But when I committed, I committed. Um, that I definitely remember um, for sure. So, yeah. and I'm sure there are third grade examples too that I don't remember, <laughs> but. Well, you know, some of those victories get forgotten, but they, you know, they still got you where you are. Um, <laughs> so you went to Hofstra for law school. Um, what, what, what took you to Hofstra? couple of things. So I, uh, so I grew up close by and my, you know, I didn't have to pay for housing there, but the other, the other important factor was money. So during the recruitment process, I had offers from different places in the area and, you know, they offered me a good scholarship. So between the scholarship, you know, the, the reputation and the fact that it was close to home, that was, that was what led me there. Yeah, it looks like you got the University School of Law Merit Scholarship, according to my research. Uh, what was the, I mean, was that just based upon your performance in undergrad? I mean, that's that's obviously an important achievement. What's the... I don't remember. I think it was a, I would think it was a function of the LSAT score, I think, and, and undergrad. And there was a lot of interviewing, like I met with the dean several wow. times. So I think that that was part of the equation too. Um, and it's funny because it sounds like a cold, like calculus, right? Pick the school based on those factors, but... I mean, if I knew what I knew about Hofstra and, and what I was going to get out of that experience, I would have ran there. I mean, it was just, I can't imagine what my path would have looked like at the other schools. I'm sure it would have been fine. I'm sure I would have gravitated towards what I gravitated towards, but 
the experiences that I had there and the mentors I had there and the connections that I had there. I mean, it was, it worked out to be a great decision. Well, and the experiences you had there, just to flatter you for a second, rightfully, I mean, national trial competition, best advocate, uh, what was then ATLA, now AAJ, regional champion, uh, multiple awards uh, at the school for your performance in trial advocacy. Sounds like you were a busy trial lawyer in law school. I was, and that, and that was it. It afforded me, they had great courses, they had great instructors. I'm sure you've heard the name Ben Rabinowitz taught me <laughs> yes. advanced trial ad. I mean, can you think, can you imagine that? It was, it was incredible. It was incredible. Um, I mean, how many people have that? that it, it was it was crazy yeah. <laughs> and i didn't know that going in right i'm like okay this like, is who's this ben talk. guy and then you're like wow <laughs> right <laughs> oh that is amazing i i got to do nita with him and interview him on the pod and that kind of thing but man he is magnetic oh I love this stuff yeah uh what was the i mean so if he was part of the trial advocacy program then at least in the coaching or the teaching side it was quite formidable, but what did it look like on the competition side? You know, what did the program look like, say 20 plus years ago at Hofstra? Yeah. And this is, this is a, I'm sure you're going to get to a Jared question, but this is going <laughs> <Jared so>, <laughs> to be a preemptive Jared shout out. So, um, you know, when I was in, when I was in school, we only did two programs. We only, we only, we only did two competitions. We did AAJ and we did Tyla or NTC at the time or whatever it's called these days. Right, 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 right. right. Um, yeah. So like two L's would do, AJ, three L's would do NTC. Oh, wow. And there were, I don't know, were there like eight people on the team or something? I don't even remember. It was very, it was a very small number. Uh, and tryouts were intense for that reason. Um, so that's what it was like. But then the coaches, you know, because it, again, a little preview for the Jared shout out, like the coach, the coaches were faculty. So there were two faculty, Larry Kessler at the time, who passed away, and Stefan Krieger, both tenured professors there with a ton of experience. Mm -hmm. um, and they were the coaches. So again, you know, and you had that full-time faculty there. It was, it was, it was great because you could work with them during the day. They worked with you at night. It was a whole, it was a, it was a really nice experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll let the Jared questions come later. <laughs> you were saving those up actually I, am saving, I know i know they're coming spencer i know they're coming <laughs> let the anticipation build <laughs> so you graduate from hofstra tell us about i mean because you like so many folks we get to talk to on the podcast have these parallel at least two plain parallel careers going coaching teaching and then practicing law and they intermingle so it's kind of hard to separate them out i don't want to separate out the narrative too much but why don't you take us into your early years in practice? What what did that look like? I worked at a boutique personal injury firm, plaintiffs, and small small shop with a. I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna just say it like he was genius level in terms of uh, trying cases and neuroscience. He was he was just off the charts in his understanding of the brain and neurological disorders. So I walked into like, I, I skipped, you know, the soft tissue stuff. I went, I went straight into neuroscience and it was, it was awesome. And, and again, I've been really, really fortunate. I've had fantastic mentors and he, he gave me so much. He put so much into me. Um, it was a fantastic, it was, it was perfect. Right. I, I wasn't, I wasn't buried in the corner 
you know, the office doing motions. I mean, I did do motions, but every day I had contact with him every day. Um, and everything that I did, he helped me make it better. Um, so that's what I was doing. But to fast forward, not opportunity to try a case in that environment, right? Like those cases, and, and nor should I, should not be trying those cases. So it was this, on the one hand, it was this fantastic like learning opportunity just from a, a pure like growth standpoint on certain aspects of it. But then at some point you have to do it, mm -hmm. right? So as time went on, it, it just became clear that the, the the doing aspect of the growth was going to be a little a little stunted, if that's the right word. I don't mm -hmm. know if stunted is the right word, but slowed down mm -hmm. in that environment. And I really wanted to try cases. So um so you moved on. But but before we talk about that, so was that Levine and Grossman? Is that the firm you're talking about? Uh, no, it's not. I, I moved on to Levine and Grossman. The first firm was uh Flomanhaft and Canada. Okay, got it. Okay. And um you were there for what it looks like for you know, for several years actually, right? So I had two stints there. So okay, I yeah. don't remember exactly how many, but I, I, I want to say it was like three, four years out of law school. Then I hit this place where it was I wasn't gonna try cases and it was a real nice discussion. It wasn't like it was just everyone understood. Yep. Yeah. So then I went to Levine and Grossman, which was a whole different operation. Yeah. So that's what I, I wanted to get to that because you uh, had 15 trials there in like two, three years, basically, it looks like. Yeah. So they had they had lower tier cases Yeah. or perceived lower tier cases, right? The cases that no one else in the firm wanted to try, whether it was a terrible liability case or, you know, allegedly terrible liability case yep. or a complicated damages case. Um so it was a volume practice. And because of that, I got in there a lot. I got like right off the jump. And that's the reason why I went there. And so how big was that shop, you know, approximately? It's a big shop. Um, I'd say at the time I was there, there was at least, at least seven to eight lawyers. Mm -hmm. And the caseload was, I think they probably had about a thousand cases. Mm -hmm. right yep. now, you know, between 750 and 1,000, I don't remember, but there was, the phone was always ringing. There was always cases coming in and everyone had a pretty robust caseload. So were you then, you know, when you go there and you're like, I want to try cases, did you sort of internally brand yourself that way too? Like, hey, you got a bad case that's going to trial, give it to me? Or how did you, you know, what was your approach? Yeah, that was it. That was that was the, when I was exploring other opportunities, when I was uh, looking to leave Flomenhaft, uh, that was it. That was I said it, I would try any case you had. Mm -hmm. And you must have averaged what, six or seven for two and a half years, which is wild to me. What would you take from that experience? I mean, on the one hand, it's amazing to get in the courtroom, period, full stop. On the other hand, you know, um, these are not going to be the uh, the best cases. That's kind of the point of the whole thing. And that can be hard on, on a young lawyer, um, getting outcomes that aren't exactly what they hope for, or it could be great as if you're getting great outcomes on all of them. But I assume that's probably not what happened. Yeah, I know the outcomes were the outcomes. I mean, they, they, I, I lost, I lost more of those than I won. Yeah. And, uh, but it, it, it's funny. Like I never thought about this till you just asked the question. But like there was always, there was always something about each case mm. that I felt strongly about. Right. So you know what we now know as grown ups to be like the central thing that you want to focus on the case. It was just like I was a young lawyer and I was like this is really important to me and I'm going to really focus on this and I'm going to get behind this. 
Mm. And sometimes it did carry me towards a positive result. Um, and sometimes it didn't, but that's what it, it taught me. Like it also taught me like I didn't really, I didn't really care what other people thought about the case, right? Like yeah. someone told me there's, there was a perceived problem. I think this goes back to the original question you asked me, Spencer, like, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I don't, I don't care what someone tells me who's like 60 years old, who's got this like formula in their head about what a case is worth. Like I'm going to explore it and I'm going to get into it. Right. So a bulging disc to other people or a herniated disc to other people is like a certain thing. That wasn't the case with me. I approached it clean. And I think that was a product of my first experience, right? Where, where the science was so important and medicine was so important to come to your own understanding of it. Um, I brought that with me and, and the cases were, the cases were significant in my head and there were good results, you know, and when there wasn't, there wasn't, but, um, I fought hard each time and I found, I found the thing that resonated with me and I, I worked them up real hard. And did you have mentors at that time or a particular mentor, right? Because it's like, it's a little hard, uh, really at any juncture, but you know, at that juncture in particular to have somebody who's been practicing for 30 plus years, say, that's ah, a bad case because of this or that. And I wouldn't try that case. And, you know, and you're sitting there thinking, uh, I haven't tried a lot of cases. Maybe I'm wrong, you know, and you benefit from being pretty stubborn. I understand. But I mean, how did you, how did you overcome that? Yeah. So it was also, you know, when my, I was looking for the right opportunity when I was looking for that second place. Right. And it was, it was first someone that was, I was looking for someone that was going to be able to give me the opportunities in terms mm -hmm. of a supervisor, give me some guidance when I wanted it and when they wanted to give it to me, but also be open to hearing my point of view as well in an open way. Like they can give me a different point of view. Um, so basically I found that and that's why I went to this firm that Levine, who was my mentor there, you know, he would never like aggressively tell me this case is only worth this or you will never win because of this. He would say, this is really problematic. I would tell him how I want to get around it. Mm -hmm. Give me some maybe feedback in terms of how I can address that or what the other side is going to say. But he let me do it, right? The idea was that he wanted me to continue yeah. to try cases. And, I, you know, I did. It was There was an evolution in the quality of cases um, based on my own growth at that time. So, so then after you have your second stint at Flomenhaft and Kanata, then you have your own shop for several years, right? Yeah. Tell me about that. I mean, what was that like to launch uh, that? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. So at, at Flomenhaft, his business model... Um, one of his business models was that he would get cases referred to him. So I think we talked about this, like some of, you know, a lot of his cases would get referred to him like probably like six months, three months before trial. So he was getting referred the case to trial. So like I was exposed to that early. Mm. And once I had the experience of Levine and Grossman, and then I went back to Flomenhaf, now, now I started to try cases there, right? And I started to try cases for different people in that same mindset. And as time went on, they wanted to give me more cases yeah. to try. But then there was another issue, right? Because now those cases are not at the level of ah. what of what of what Plumhaft's what Plumhaft's firm was. And again, understandably so. So again, there was this point where there was this opportunity for me to have to have this uh inventory of referral sources to literally just grab the file and go to trial at some point. And I had to do it. 
Um, so that's what I did. And then, you know, it spreads. Other people start giving you cases. Yep. So that's what I did. What was that like, though? I mean, because I've talked to so many folks who have taken the leap of starting their own shop. And it's quite interestingly, um, I think everybody I've spoken to has gotten a lot out of it and loved it. And it's been a success for them. Um, and you're obviously in that category, too. But it's scary to do that. Of course, you had some insight into here's some you know referral sources and probably Flomanhaft was supportive of it and that kind of thing. But how hard was it to take that leap? It wasn't that hard. <laughs> and maybe that's just because I didn't know what I was doing or what I was getting into. I mean, it, it 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 got hard six months, a year later when I started to have to manage cash flow. But right. at the time, I wasn't thinking about that. I was like, oh, my God, these people are going to give me cases to try. I'm doing it. That was it. There was That was the thought process. It was very exciting to me. And then... And then managing the, you know, because it goes peaks and valleys, right? There's there's time where you're not going to be trying a case every month. So just managing that, that then it became stressful. <laughs> then yeah. it became a little challenging. Um, <laughs> I got to ask about one case in particular. It was a, a case you tried uh, in federal court where I know you have uh, great memories of the judge and his comments or their comments about your closing argument and how powerful it was. What, what was that case and what, what was the thing you were drawing on there that, you know, was so memorable to that judge and led to that outcome? Yeah, that case was a once in a lifetime experience. Um, it was a really, really complicated case and it was really significant. So just a quick, yeah, what's this? Yeah. A quick cliff note version was um, a long, long time ago when Governor Pataki was the governor of New York. At that time, I think about like 12 states in the country had these um, these laws where they could involuntarily commit sex offenders or people who committed a certain category of offenses that were lumped as sex offenders. Um, they could take them at the end of their sentence after they were close to the end and start instituting procedures to transfer them to a psych facility as opposed to letting them out based on certain criteria. And those laws, if this is not one of the discussions, not to comment on the laws, but those laws had due process obviously built into all of them, right? They had the hearing, they had the notice, they had everything they needed. And Governor Pataki wanted that here, not here, I'm here anymore, I'm in California, but they wanted that in New York and he couldn't get it through. He couldn't get it passed. Mm. So finally in his third term, he's like, I'm just going to figure out a way to do it myself. Mm. They came up with this, all the, you know, the high end government officials that there was this whole um, initiative that was developed where essentially they, they took components of this law that existed other places, shoehorned it into existing mental hygiene law in New York. Mm. And they started to involuntarily commit people in New York with mm. no due process, mm. with no notice. I mean, I, I kid you not, there were situations where like someone would literally be at the end of their sentence, ready to leave prison the next day. Prison officials would go to that person and be like, you know, before you leave, you just have to talk to these two psychiatrists real quick as a condition of your release. Not why do I have to talk to them? Not what are the consequences of me talking to them? Mm -hmm. And they went, right? They're about to leave after, you know, they're about to leave. They go and these doctors... You know, they rubber stamped. Wow. They 
and, and they they fit they 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 signed off that they fit they met the criteria for this um, for this initiative, and then they were transferred the next day, put in a van, and taken to a psych facility. Whoa! Yes, yes. Like beyond their actual prison term, they are beyond their actual prison term. And then, and then, and then yes. And once you're in a psych facility, you are at their mercy, right? Because now everything is it's all justifying the initial commitment. And some of them were there for, you know, some of them got out after 30 days, but some of them were in for years afterwards. So forgetting about the people, right? Because this is an incredibly radioactive um, yeah. group of people. Right. Right. The actual constitutional violation was horrendous. Um, and that that was the case in a nutshell. So at that time, I represented six of these individuals who were swept into this initiative in the early phases. Um, and they all have their own stories in terms of how they got transferred over and how long they were in for. Um, so that was it. It was wow. a civil rights case. Wow. The, the primary claim was uh, due process. And and that was it. Wow. And that trial, and the, the reason, one, the case is really interesting for a host of reasons but the other part was the judge fantastic judge but he is known for a very intense discovery schedule and, mm -hmm. a, rocket, and, a, and a rocket docket so like it, there was i worked on that case for at least a year nonstop, working on nothing else i was doing depositions every week i was doing there was motion practice there was prep there was conferences like it was my whole life for over a year, um, but it was such a focused time. I was very, very committed to that case and invested in that case. So when it came time to try that case and it came time to closing argument, I was, I was in it. Wow, I can tell. Just I mean, you know, one one downfall of the podcast medium it's just it's just audio, but this sticks with you. This is a formative. This is a this is a part of you, part of your history, part of your you being a trial lawyer. This is part of your story powerful yeah because it's you know i think one of the things that i eventually learned are, was the reason why i tried cases was because they're i have a very strong reaction to like a wrong right i just this was so wrong in so many levels regardless of the people right regardless of the clients the actual thing that was done it just was very um you wouldn't expect that in this country, right? Like that, that to me is like, you, you just, you wouldn't expect that here. It was such a blatant constitutional violation in my opinion. So, um, or that was the allegation. I don't know if this is going to get recorded, but just so. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> okay. So you, you have your own shop then for several years, but then you move on to, um, a couple other firms really over time, I guess, Asta and Associates and then Faruqi and Faruqi. What was the, what was the, you know, what was the progression that brought you to, you know, go to another shop after having your own? So it was, it was this case. So the, the consequence of this case, you know, financially, I didn't make any money for yeah. well, over, for well over a year, Wow, well over a year. I think it was, I mean, I try not to think about it, but there was, it was minimum one year where I made no money. Oh. So and not just that, but during that, during this time, let's call it a year, year and a half, whatever it is, I couldn't, I couldn't take those referral cases anymore for trial because I couldn't, I didn't have the time. 
So the thing with those kind of referral sources, they need, they still need someone to try the cases, right? So yeah. they start to find other people to give those cases to. So to start to build that inventory up again after what was an incredibly exhausting, um, emotionally draining, uh, intense experience. Uh, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to transition and, and see, and see, and see how I can grow in a new environment in the right environment. Right. And that's what I eventually found. So. That is such a difficult struggle. I find to, you know, being a trial lawyer is also being a business person and, you know, that is a hard balance and it can, it can, it can lead to outcomes like you just described, you know, um, because your path is not necessarily clear until you've gone a good distance down it, you know, it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. But, you know, I learned, I learned a lot, like just from a business standpoint that, I mean, it, it's a, it's a big hole to dig yourself out of, right? Okay. So let's talk about that other track, the, the teaching and coaching track, which started out basically right away, I think, right? When did you start coaching? Yeah, it's right. I, I can't put the exact time. I think I probably started coaching informally right after I graduated at some point within the first two years. You know, when I got the adjunct title at Hofstra, I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but I started, I started, I, I went right back into that program uh, to give back to that program right after I graduated in some capacity. And as I understood it, Jared was one of your students. Is that right? That is right. So, so you unleashed Jared on the world then, I guess. Jared unleashed himself. I think I, <laughs> he came I, 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 I was just there to watch. <laughs> How would you describe Jared's demeanor and vocabulary back in law school? Exactly the same as it is now. <laughs> much more articulate now but not by much is exactly the same in terms of the vocabulary, the cadence. <laughs> I love it. Pre-unleashed and he's stayed the same. He's gotten better at it, but he's stayed he has gotten better at it. He has gotten better at it. So then you, you started off coaching and teaching at Hofstra, which I think you did for what, maybe four or five years, something like that. I think that sounds right. Um, four or five years. Uh, and then you, of course, switch. You you go over to a competitor school. You head off to Fordham. What was the reason for the the move there? Probably life circumstances or something, or what was the reason? Yeah. So you know, everyone listening to this podcast knows how much time goes into coaching, and when you're working and coaching, right? It's mm-hmm. you're there till nine, ten o'clock at night uh, at the school. So I was living in the city. I was working in the city. Uh, so commuting, and and it. And I did it and I loved it, but, you know, getting home at 11 o'clock at night and then having, as, as I got, as I got more experience, right. The work obligations become more and more significant. So it just, it just became, it just became unsustainable or very, very challenging uh, to do that. So. So instead of stopping, I love it. You switched schools to Fordham. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was, it's so funny. Like I, I wish I can maybe find the email, but I just, I was like, you know what? I want to keep coaching. Yeah. I know this guy, Adam, <laughs> you know, cause I, cause I would coach against him at the different competitions yeah. and uh, let me just shoot an email out to them. See if they want an extra coach, um, total Hail Mary. And they responded and they put me, they signed me to a team and, and it was awesome. And I was there for, I was there forever. I would still be there if I didn't get this job at McGeorge. So <laughs> 
Uh, how do you properly pronounce the last name of that Adam? Just out of curiosity. Oh, come on, Spencer. Schlahet. I think. Schlahet, Schlahet. Speaking of Mr. Schlahet and Mr. Rosenblatt, are you more a trial competition performance ratings guy or more of a gavel guy out of curiosity? I don't, don't know. I think we have to offend either or both of them. Oh, look, they both have their purpose. And I tried to incorporate both of their purposes in the gold cup, right? So uh, I think they both they both rank things, right? And they both, you use it for what you want to use it for. I think they both are really, really informative rankings. And you're not going to get me to pick one or the other, Spencer. Wow. So I guess Jared learned nothing from you then. If, you, if that's how you taught him, he learned nothing. That was a very different <laughs> <laughs> Um. So how would you describe your, your coaching strategy or philosophy? How would you put it in words? Growth, mm. giving the students permission to fail, uh, creating the environment where they can take chances, find their own voice, do things that they want to do, uh, knowing that they'll be supported along that way and, and guided towards finding their voice, not my voice for them but their own voice with, you know, with my, with my insight coming in, not my voice coming in. So it's not like, here's what I do. You're going to do this, yeah. right? Here's what I do. Here's what someone else would do. You know, take that how you will, you know, it, I mean, this, that's it. It's just, it's just creating the environment where they, where they learn, where they learn from their mistakes and they get better in the environment that it is. And like the team environment is also really important in terms of my my coaching philosophy, like the team of four or the team of two, whatever the team is, that everyone is is helping everyone, right? So it's not just the coach that's coaching the team. You already touched on one answer to this question, but I'm curious what the hallmarks are of that growth environment you create for your students, because it is, as we all know, daunting uh, for our students and for ourselves to you know, work together in groups and like, it's your turn to go now. Good luck on that cross or whatever. And that's, that's scary, especially early in a person's trial advocacy career. What are some of the hallmarks you create? It sounds like you like to build teams that are supportive of each other, but what are some of the classic things you do that help make it a growth environment? So two things, right? It is daunting. And off the bat, I make sure that everyone understands that everyone is going to learn things at a different pace. Everyone's going to get better at something quicker than someone else. That doesn't mean that you're that you're not going to get it. It doesn't mean that you know that person's necessarily so much better, but it means that you know people pick up on different things quicker, right? Someone's going to do a cross, going to going to get the concepts quicker. Someone might do a direct, and the, and that's going to be quicker than the person that got the cross quicker. But then in that moment is this awesome opportunity for the person who got it quicker to help the person. Um, we didn't get it as quick. And then that's how the, that's how team builds. And that's how that that's set up. But then the other thing about how to make it not daunting is I try my very best to, to structure the feedback in a way that there's like something that can be mastered in the practice session, not mastered, but like mm. conquered maybe is the better word, right? Like this is the thing that's jumping off the page at me about what this student needs in this moment right now. I will focus on that skill and I will do my best to make sure in that practice session that they feel very, very comfortable with that one component before they leave. Mm -hmm. Everything's in my mind, everything stacks, right? So 
sure, I think there are people that are a lot better than me that can do more than one thing and like get a student to learn two or three different things. Yeah, so I think there are people that are that are probably a lot better at it than me in terms of like two or three different skills during a course of a session. But I like to just I like to focus on one, right? And then if that person gets the one, then if I have time, I can stack it from there. But that that's something I'm I I really try to stay mindful of um, during the practice sessions. I love that idea, right? Because you are. It's like it's like what can be won for there? What what can you what what tangible um, thing can you get better at or make a noticeable improvement at in this session? Because not only do they improve that thing, they also teach themselves they can improve things. And then of course, once they get this notion of stacking together, then they realize, wait a minute, I can I can see my route forward. I just got to keep doing this this and that. I love that. Um. Okay. Well. I want to talk about McGeorge now, uh, a bit of the culmination of these two tracks we were talking about. And as you may have guessed, I've been glancing at your CV as we're going along here. And I looked at your core legal attributes. They are very impressive. Uh, but I will say I've got one question for you. So when it comes to trial advocacy, your core legal attributes include jury selection, cross-examination, opening and closing arguments. But nothing is said of direct examination. So what's the shortcoming? Why why is it that you can't, that you can't do directs, I guess? I think I think I need to edit the rest of that. <laughs> That's when we had this uh, sit down. <laughs> That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. Uh, that and the, the lame jokes. Uh, but so now that you're out at McGeorge, is that completely only teaching? Is there any window to do some private practice or is that up in the air? What, what's it look like? Yeah, there is a window and some flexibility to continue to uh, to represent clients, uh, you know, in a obviously balancing the two sure. disabilities and and handling certain cases in New York uh, as my schedule permits. Nice. So what's but tell us about the the move, how it happened and, you know, why it happened. And we'd love to have you out here on the West Coast, but it's a big move. Yeah, it was a huge move. Um, it was the opportunity, right? So I, I knew, I knew about McGeorge and the reputation, and uh, I was fortunate enough to meet Carrie and Jay, you know, because Adam would send me to, you know, the ethics competition a couple mm -hmm. of times. So I got to meet them, and just it, every time I came, and this is I, this is no joke. Like every time I came to this competition, the the ethics competition, it's like this place is awesome. This program is awesome. These people who run the program are amazing. And like the students and the vibe, like I just got a good vibe every time I went there. Um, and then I got to know Karen Jay a little bit as time went on. And uh, the opportunity to, to be in that kind of environment, right? And to build on the excellence that they created. Uh, pretty unique and as big of a move as it, as it is, right? That going coast to coast and uh, I, I had to take it. Mm -hmm. That's something that opens up a lot, right? Yeah. Wow. Well, one thing you're doing with the opportunity is the gold cup. You mentioned that uh, a bit ago, uh, but tell us about that tournament. It's really exciting. It's, uh, you know, the format, the format I think is a little unique in terms of the world cup type of format and the different pools, the way that we did the selections were very important in terms of making it very clear and very transparent how we're picking the teams. Mm -hmm. um, so everyone knew going in what the criteria would be. I thought that was, that was unique. 
and there's going to be scholarship money and there's going to be there's going to be some some award money which is still being hashed out but that's also another another cool thing uh, a criminal case which i know our community needs so uh, that's also exciting and it's it's being it's being led by a non you know a nonprofit of new george and uh the, the da of sacramento is is part of it so it, it, you know all of that's really it's pretty cool um so it, it should be really exciting. We're really, we're putting it together now. Yeah, I know that we're very excited about it and love to have a new criminal competition on the circuit. Is this at all related to the gift from Robert Eaglet? Is it any part or parcel of that? Is it, no, it's not at all. Uh, you negotiated separately for your $5 million portion of that that gift, I take it then. I cannot comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's finish with a couple fun things here. Um, so you you may have guessed this question is coming, having to do with your favorite legal movie or TV show or both. But what is your favorite movie or legal TV show? Favorite legal movie or TV show? Favorite legal movie? I don't know. I've always been partial to... Uh... Oh, there's so many to choose from. True. I, don't, I didn't true. see that coming, Spencer. I didn't see that coming at all. Well, let's keep stalling. This is, this is a tried and true technique on this podcast to just kind of... Um, some of the best answers I find come from stalling and vamping. What was all with Matthew McConaughey? The the one was it Lincoln Lawyer? Lincoln Lawyer, that was a good one. I'm gonna yeah. go with Lincoln. I'm gonna go with Lincoln Lawyer. Lincoln Lawyer. I think that's a first on pod. Wonderful. <laughs> okay, and now, uh, what's your favorite thing you are good at? And equally importantly, what's your favorite thing you are not so good at? Ooh. And by the way, we'll just cut the the silence, right? So you can, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that was it's very nice of you. You can just think about it. Yeah. Favorite thing I'm good at. Okay, here you go. I think it's the same answer for both. Oh, interesting. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am very seldom good at something I do for the first time, mm. but I'm very good at working to get better at that mm -hmm. thing. So like, I think my favorite thing that I'm good at is not letting you know, not letting a, a failure get in my way. Mm. And uh, favorite thing I'm not good at is not being good at it initially and then <laughs> developing it from there. So I think that's that's my answer. Wonderful. Well, Reza, thank you so much for joining on Unscripted Direct. It was such an honor to have you and to get to know you better. So thank you for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you out there on the circuit. Thank you. It's great talking to you. Well, we wanted to have Reza's interview this week because McGeorge is hosting for the first time their Gold Cup competition. It's one of several events as we wind down the semester. So good luck to everybody competing up north. Good luck. Uh, well, before we call this episode done, it seems like we should try to wedge in something that's, say, wildly inadmissible. This is our segment where we share some non-truths supported by non-evidence uh, and offer these disclaimers to avoid libel, slander, defamation suits. Yeah. So if we tried to get this into evidence at, in trial, like what, what would be the result? Oh, it's coming in. <laughs> okay. This week, you, you, you all know Dave Schott, the, yeah. the fabulous director at Denver. Yeah. Of cre creator of one of our sponsors. Right. Trial yeah. Pro. Ed educator of, of not just his students, 
but students all over the world. Really? True. Well, it turns out he may be moving on to other things. I, I don't know if it's going to be in addition to his work at Denver or instead of, I, I don't know. Okay. But he is, I don't know if he's the leading candidate or just a finalist for the next James Bond. What? Yep. Oh my God, that's wild. What that you know doesn't if you think about it for a second, it doesn't actually surprise you that much. Um right. I mean, th- there are a couple impediments. Um like what? Well, he's not a professional actor. Okay, okay. He's he's not British. All right, okay. That's yeah, it's no problem. Um, I think those are I think those are the big ones. The the thing that strikes me as a problem is that James Bond is dead. That seems like that could be a challenge. Hey, enough with the spoilers. Oh, and also James Bond is not dead. That version of James Bond may have had something bad happen to him at the end of the last movie. No spoiler, Spencer, but James Bond has always reincarnated in, in, you know, different series of 007. Let me ask you then a dumb question. Okay. Um, So are you saying, and this may be just wildly obvious and I could Google it, but I won't. I'll just ask it at my own peril. This is not how I understood things to happen in the James Bond series. Uh, not that I'm even remotely a connoisseur of the series or of movies generally. Um, does the does that version does, does, do have prior version? Has each version of Bond died at the end of their run? I, I'm so so disappointed. Uh, you know what? I shouldn't make fun of you. You were you were you were vulnerable. You were willing to wade into waters that you you don't swim in often. Um, and so I will, I will answer your question without making fun of you too much. Uh, no, this is a different ending to the most recent bond than the, the other bond movies. Usually it's just another action movie one after another. And, uh, often with, with sort of no history, like they, you know, when you have the new actor playing James Bond, it's like a clean slate. Yeah. Okay. So what's, what's the, what's the, where's the joke? What's the, what, so I'm, I'm right. This is a unique death, but you're saying he's, he's going to survive it somehow. And Dave shot. Well, they're not, they're not discontinuing the franchise. They're not uh, going to be like RIP James. I, I was getting the vibe that it would be a woman who would be the next. So I think that was a little bit of a misconception because they advertised that it'd be a new double of seven. And the last movie, the idea was that he had retired and his number double of seven had been reassigned. And it was a, a woman who had the role, but I don't. I don't think they're playing to cast a woman as the next James Bond. Maybe they should. Well, that that sounds like a, a, a debate for for another week. But I believe that the candidates are seven <laughs> British men and Dave Shot. My money's on Dave Shot. It would be anyway every time. But uh, I'm excited for him. This would be a, this would be a big career career development. Right. I think we should start calling him Shot, Dave Shot. <laughs> <laughs> Shaken, not stirred. All right. See you next week. Good luck, everybody. (laughs) See you, folks. Unscripted Direct is a production of Justin and Spencer. We're mixed, edited, and guided spiritually by the Sam Chase. Find us on various social media channels as follows. For Instagram, at Unscripted Direct. Facebook is facebook.com slash Unscripted Direct. And Twitter, which will always be Twitter to me, we're at Unscripted DX.